0: Hey folks, welcome back to the Wild podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers, and in this podcast we want to share mentorship to learn how to hunt, fish, and gather wild food. Our goal is to reduce barriers and create an inclusive and welcoming community for all folks who want to learn how to eat wild. So join us as we share stories, ethics, adventures, and knowledge about a way of life that's rooted in eating wild. Hey folks, it's Dylan here. Welcome to the Eat Wild podcast. In this next podcast, we're talking about first aid for hunters and first aid in the wilderness setting on adventures. And I've asked my friend Cam Fenton to join us. Now I know Cam because he is um, he's part of the packraft community, and he's uh, he's one of the very few packraft instructors here in, in BC. And uh, we actually partnered on a Eat Wild uh, Ascent Guide. Packrafting course and a friend of ours, Sam Waddington. He uh, he owns Sam Waddington Outdoors in the Valley, and they sell packrafts. And they also they're also involved in ascent uh, guiding service for a, a wilderness um, outdoor stuff. And uh, and Cam's one of the main main instructors for that program, and he specializes in packraft um, instruction and keeping people safe on the water and helping them build the the skills and, and confidence to go out on the water and enjoy packrafting. So, anyways, we we got together. We did this this packrafting course and um, got got a bunch of fo- folks on the water, and uh, hopefully they'll be more prepared and safe for, for their hunting adventures in the future with packrafts. But through that um, hanging out with Cam and getting to know him a little bit, and some of the conversations we had specifically around you know reducing the potential for you know accidents along the on the water and, and preparing for you know first aid related responses in that context, we we talked a lot about hunting as well, and uh, and re- you know, reducing risks and being prepared and, and developing a, you know, a uh, a, a kit for a first aid kit for, for hunters and what that can look like. And I thought we'd bring that conversation to the eat wild community. So anyways, Cam, Cam's come on here and he's going to ch- hang out with us and talk a little bit about his background and perspectives on first aid in particular, uh, for, for hunting. So it's going to be a great one here. Um, I want to make sure you guys know that, um, you can get a discount with, uh, uh, West Coast Kitchen Canada on your adventure food. If you need uh, dehydrated food for the backcountry, go to West Coast Kitchen Canada and use the Eat Wild code to access uh, a discount on their product. And... Um yeah, you'll feel, you'll feel nur- nourished on your next adventure. And, uh, also we're, we're getting lots of support again from our friends at, uh, seek outside. Uh, we've got some upcoming adventures here. We're doing another wilderness packraft adventure for, uh, elk this year and we'll be using their, their tents to keep us dry and warm. Uh, we're taking the eight man teepee tent on the river and firing up the stove to, um, yeah, keep us toasty at night and have a place to hang out. Um, yeah anyways uh always uh always rely on their tents to um yeah take care of me in the backcountry. right on and you can use the eat wild discount discount code to access uh a break on their stuff and it's eat wild and um yeah hope you check them out all right let's get into this one hey cam welcome to the eat Wild podcast thanks for having me this is gonna be fun so um we, we got to know each other um, through, well, we did a pack rafting course together. We got hooked up by our friend in common, uh, Sam, and uh, Sam was hoping that we could work out trying to figure out how to do a uh, uh, pack rafting course for, for hunters and um, and put us in touch. And and of course, um, you have a background in, in pack rafting and pack craft instruction, and, and you're just actually back from a pack rafting instruction course of some kind or, or, or certification. I understand. What, what was that all about?
1: Yeah, it was down in Colorado. Um, the American canoe association, uh, has created a kind of packraft instructor certification. Um, so it's the first of that kind that's existed. Uh, so I was down there for a week, uh, with a bunch of other kind of packraft individuals, uh, you know, spending a bunch of time in the water, uh, dialing things in and, um, yeah, just getting kind of certified to, to do the teaching side of things.
0: So so we had a ton of fun on that and actually it was an opportunity for us to work together and and uh, and it actually turns out in your, I guess I was going to say in your professional life, which is probably all of this wrapped in one, but you're also a paramedic and uh, and a wilderness first aid instructor. And so that's actually what I want to talk to you about today. So we, we could probably talk about pack all day and pack safety. Maybe we'll just pause that conversation. Well, I just wanted to create that link as how you got here. But wh- what I wanted to, why I brought you on and what I'm excited to talk about is, um, is first aid for hunters. And I think it's something we actually don't talk about enough, um, especially in the hunting community. We spend a lot of time talking about gear. We talk about like where and how to go hunting, but we really don't talk about that sort of how to stay safe and how to be prepared. So I brought you on, Cam because I think you're the right guy to talk about wilderness safety, first day preparation, and regional reasonable exa- expectations for what to bring with you and what type of training to have along the way. But maybe for our listeners, you could provide a little bit of background on, on your sort of professional realm working within first aid instruction and training, and a little bit of background on your, you know, wilderness sort of background, because I think that's an interesting part of this conversation as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, So yeah, I work uh, as a paramedic with BC Ambulance Service, uh, and I teach wilderness first aid courses uh, with a company called Coast Wilderness Medical Training. Um, And I've done a lot of sort of both adventuring on my own, um, especially pack rafting. So a lot of the carrying the boats into the middle of nowhere, kind of usually my thing is searching out remote backcountry whitewater, so um, getting into dangerous, cold, wet things in the middle of nowhere. Um, but I've also got kind of a range of experience doing all kinds of trips from, you know, big kayak expeditions up in the Arctic to ski touring, you know, all over B.C. Um, and I've done some of it professionally. I've been a sea kayaking guide. I've done avalanche instruction. Um, I've got a I'm an apprentice hiking guide with the ACMG. Um, So kind of a wide range of of experience in the mountains. Um, And a lot of it always kind of circles back to, I ended up in the kind of first aid and paramedic world, because in the guiding side of things and the instructing side of things, I always found myself super interested when things went really wrong. Um, And so decided to pursue that a little bit more uh, as a career. Uh, And I really enjoy kind of thinking through it and thinking through like, what do we need to bring? What is the uh, activity that we're doing? What are the risks and kind of Thinking through also, what do we really need? I think there's a, often a lot of kind of, uh, I think a lot of people just go and buy the adventure kit uh, off the shelf at MEC, throw it in their backpack, and then forget about it until they need it. Um, and uh sometimes that is enough, um, oftentimes it's not. Um, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, the second half of that, you, you open it up and go, what's this thing for? And what's this thing for? And I've been yeah, packing that really- around. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Oh, this wasn't as waterproof as the, the container said it was.
0: <laughs> no, for sure. And I think that's kind of where I wanted to go with this conversation because we, along the way of like hanging out with you for a few days there as we were putting together the packrafting course and, 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 and working on the, on or being on the river together and just the conversation we were having around, I mean, it comes to packrafting and, and being prepared and, and looking at sort of reasonable expectations for disaster or, 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 or I mean, when things go badly <laughs> and then how to respond to them. And I, and I think pack rafting is one one very, um, well, it, it is quite inherently quite, you know, there's dangerous aspects of it given that you're on water and there's a spectrum of of, of experiences um, that you may have in a pack rafting, which is like you said, like what you may seek out, which is remote whitewater river with, you know, steep, cold, remote, all of which high, high risk factors, whereas, and then the other spectrum might be just paddling across a still lake. So very similar, like hunting is kind of that same realm. I mean, there's probably... If we're going to talk about first aid and emergency res- preparedness, um, uh, uh, you know, it's a very wide spectrum of what what you may encounter with hunt- the hunting community. At one end of the spectrum, there are folks who probably don't really get straight too far from their vehicle. They you know for the most part are probably uh, road hunting and, and, and observing wildlife from the road and, and then pursuing their hunts from there within a very short distance of the road and, and from camp and maybe even within you know pretty good communication within cell range and such. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where there's individuals who will bring ropes and 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 and, and be prepared to be hanging off the side of a cliff to, trying to reach down to a goat that they've shot. And, and there's a, you know, so there's a very, very wide spectrum. And where I kind of want to land this conversation is somewhere in the realm of like when a person will be, you know, leaving camp and intending to spend the day in wilderness by themselves in, you know, mountain terrain, um, like on a hike in search of game. Uh, and then that's probably one, the, the, the low risk end of the spectrum to the farther end of the spectrum, which is maybe a, a multi-day backpack hunt into say like, um, the coast mountains or the South Chocotan or the, you know, just where there's mountain terrain you're camping out overnight and you're getting, you know, you're within a day's, you know, in about a day's walk back to your, into a logging road and, and out of cell service. So I'm kind of landing it in that realm of, you know, potential, uh, scenarios that could go sideways and then extending on to um and then we'll maybe talk about well first off maybe i'll ask you like no doubt you this sort of well maybe provide your thoughts on some potential scenarios that can go this first aid scenarios that would be common in that spectrum of hunting like hunting activity
1: yeah i mean i think the i think the big one is that you know we within all kind of wilderness activities we see a lot more of the like low acuity um so the bumps sprains things like that are just like moving in mountain terrain and I think particularly um with like the mountain hunting things like that you're talking about is a lot of like off-trail travel uh so you've got a lot of risk just around rolling ankles slips and falls those kind of things that are not necessarily like trip ending um but you still want to be able to provide relief and treatment, particularly if they're not going to be trip ending. I think one of the other big ones, um, particularly around anywhere in BC, and I think particularly if you're doing an activity in the fall, uh, is just being conscientious of temperature management. I think the main thing that causes um, loss of life around here is is hypothermia. People don't tend to starve to death. People don't tend to um, you know, die of thirst around here, it tends to be hypothermia and exposure. That's the big, big risk. And the big thing that kind of takes a minor situation and makes it significantly worse. Um, and then I think the other thing that's probably more unique to hunting is the introduction of, you know, a lot more, uh, use of like, particularly like the knives when you're processing the animal is I think there's a lot more risk when you're into there. Whereas I think most people who are going out hiking or backpacking, the knife is in their backpack or the Leatherman's on their belt. And maybe it comes out when they like slice cheese for a snack at lunch. Um, but it's not really a tool that they're, they're using regularly um, or that's kind of a part of the activity quite as much. And so I think you introduce some, some different
0: uh, risk with that. Um Yeah. In this situation, totally, and I, I think, and on, and just reflecting on all. So we talked about uh, bumps, bruises, and sprains, and I think the one thing that puts hunters in this weird situation is that, for one thing, they they there there's the when we're packing heavy loads, and and that's when you maybe when you've had an animal down, and then and now you've got this sort of increased pressure on yourself to move this animal efficiently uh, across broken terrain or steep terrain. And and you're probably not necessarily trained. You haven't been training with a hundred pounds of weight on your back, and now you're pushing yourself to try and get it out ahead of the heat and bugs and all the things that are happening. So, I think there's just increased pressure um, that hunters may find themselves in to move heavy loads, um, which can lead to probably more uh, more potential for free, for sprains uh, um, and and bumps and bruises. And I think the other one that's like when, you know, hunting, it just kind of pushes you. I I know that a lot of, you know, a lot of sports, I shouldn't, you know, I know that mountaineering and such, you know, people push themselves into ridiculous positions, but the, um, of exposure. And I think it's similarly, it's the same with hunting because there's, um, you know, part of the pursuit is just being able to hang in there Long enough till an animal sort of presents itself, and it's kind of the secret to hunting. Is like, how long can you just like hang out in this valley until a deer walks across that basin? And a lot of time is just sort of waiting out the rainstorms and the windstorms and the fog, or uh, to that point. But with that comes, you know, getting wet and trying to manage staying dry. And then if you do get wet, now you're wet and exposed in a storm, and and then how do you manage the potential for hypothermia? So, I think hunters really do can get themselves in pickles because of the and yeah, because of that's kind of how you hunt. And and I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of pressure, maybe even through social media and other representations of hunting where it's all about how tough can you be? How, how hard can you push yourself to, to meet that end objective? Uh, I, I'm the opposite. I try to like, say as comfortable as possible and reduce my risk to zero as possible, but um, Yeah. yeah, totally. But, um. So, and then, and then the, uh, and the third one I think is bang on with like the, like knife situation. So yeah, bringing in knives, you know, and, and we use knives and, and, and again, we're tired and, and, um, trying to rush through something. And often there's two people working on an animal and now there's two knives flying, if not three. So yeah, the potential for a serious cut is pretty high. So, so th- with that, let, us talk about those three particular, those things for this conversation. And, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about responses to all those three and then we'll, and we'll jump into some training and, and stuff I think I'd like to finish with what, what should our sort of first aid kit look like, um, at the end of the conversation. So, so let's go there and, and see how we do for time, but I appreciate you doing this. This is going to be fun. Yeah. All
1: sure. right.
0: So, so tell me first off a little bit about hypothermia, how it works uh, the coolest notes on it. And then, um, and then in, in that context of being out in, in the mountains and wet and cold, how do we uh, prevent further injury?
1: Yeah. The, the sort of long and short. So, you know, clinically we talk about there being kind of three stages of hypo, hypothermia, like mild or cold stress, moderate and severe. Um, it's always funny when you train people in these in the wilderness, because it's trained around like, Oh, your body hits this temperature and it's moderate. It hits this temperature and it's severe. Um, but Knowing the core body temper of someone, of someone requires, uh, carrying a rectal thermometer, which I don't think anyone's gonna do, uh, in the wilderness. Um, and if you are with your partners, you gotta have a pretty, pretty strong relationship there. Um, but so basically what's going on is your body, uh, is losing heat through any number of things. And I think the reason why being, getting wet is such a big challenge, um, is that you can be, um, like it doesn't need to feel, you don't necessarily need to feel cold. For your body to be losing heat when it's wet. So it's that evaporative cooling. The other reason why wet is such a thing, a uh, big consideration, is we lose body heat um, up to 25 times faster in water than we do in the air. Um, so hypothermia just progresses significantly faster. Um, and so as we go through it, as the body loses temperature uh, and goes down, essentially um, it just starts to slow down. Uh, the simple version of it is it slows down kind of basic life processes. And the colder we get, the less our body can thermoregulate. And so as it goes through, the, we start to shiver. And shivering is this involuntary muscle contraction that's using oxygen and glucose in order to keep our body warm. And then eventually, if we burn up all of the glucose stores in our body, we stop shivering and then are no longer able to thermoregulate. And that's where you start to get into these more severe cases of hypothermia, where your heart rate can slow down significantly, respiration rate starts to drop, and this is where hypothermia can lead to cardiac arrest. Um, so essentially, that's the end result of it is your temperature drops so low that your heart stops beating. Uh, and then as your heart stops beating, you stop getting oxygen to the brain, so on and so forth. Lights out. Yeah. Um, and so with hypothermia, um, and I think this is just true of all things in wilderness medicine, is like prevention is the better is always the best way to go about it i think with all things in the wilderness it's it's better and far easier to prevent something from getting bad than it is to recognize it and try to bring it back particularly when we're in these kind of austere environments with minimal resources um so i think the big things are one is just you know that the common saying i think in a lot of that comes up in a lot of outdoor things is cotton kills is Thinking about your layering mm-hmm. um, and just recognizing that, like, cotton is not like a wicking fabric. It will, once it gets wet, it stays wet. So, if you're layering, thinking about your layering systems, um, having, you know, uh, wool or synthetic base layers against your skin so that as you sweat when you're doing the big hikes and the climbs to get into uh, where you're going, or was you're kind of following an animal, like, you're going to sweat, you're going to build up heat. And if you've got cotton, that's all that's going to sweat is just going to stay there. Whereas if you've got something that's wicking it away, um, you're going to do a lot better job of, of dealing with hypothermia uh, just in terms of prevention. The other end of it is, again, it's like it gets to severe when our glucose stores run out, when our body's not able to produce enough energy to keep our thermoregulation going. Um, so proper nutrition, like staying both hydrated and eating well, is like a huge thing to kind of stay in front of of this problem. Um, the other thing to think about is just to consider things like uh, the things that kind of inhibit this process. Um, So just recognizing and knowing that if you're sick otherwise, like if you've got, you know, a fever, cough, or cold, it's going to make this process harder. Um, The other is that alcohol significantly impacts our body's ability to thermoregulate, Um, particularly because it sort of makes us feel warmer than we actually are. Um, So I think that prevention piece is, is one big part of it. The other side becomes kind of recognition and treatment. Um, so the biggest thing, easiest thing to kind of notice in terms of hypothermia is the two things you're going to notice. One is that shivering as someone starts to move through it. If you're with someone or you notice yourself start shivering, you are on the pathway to hypothermia. So noticing and recognizing at that point in time, intervening um, will help to kind of stop it from getting worse. Uh, the other is often sort of like an altered mental state. So people start to get, um, you know, you can see slurred words. You can, if you feel yourself like stumbling, missing steps, you start to see that in your partners that you're out with. That's often another sign that they could be moving in that direction. Um, You know, the other would just be cold, you know, like putting the back of your hand on someone's forehead, feeling it. Do they feel colder than they should in that moment? Um, And the big things here is sort of at the mild level. Um, So someone who is just starting to shiver, who's feeling cold, uh, who's just like, looking cold stressed the best thing we want to get for that person is calories because what we want to be able to do is kind of fire up the the furnace at that point in time Um, so from the inside we want to put kind of quick burning sugary snacks inside Um, one of the best things um that i was taught many years ago by a guide was uh and i always keep it in my first aid kit because of this is jello powder um so (laughs) jello powder in some warm water um it kind of tastes like a bunch of melted candy but the amount like the sugar the collagen everything that's in it really kind of like fires up the furnace Um, but anything you've got that's kind of like sugary sweet so like if you like to carry gels maybe throw an extra one of those in if you like to choose anything candy just like something that's going to kind of get them going really quickly Um, and that's the internal the externals we just want to make sure they're dry so the big thing here is like if clothes are wet so if someone has been sweating a lot or it's been raining or maybe they like were crossing a creek and took a slip and got a little wet we want to get the wet clothes off get them into something dry um the next step up as we start to see kind of hypothermia progress but, and can pro- i can i just oh, jump yeah. in there yeah.
0: on a couple thoughts here because yeah I, I remember seeing uh, i um i think it was sick gear that they're like um in the, in the hunting community they're the first kind of co- uh, company to really do uh high quality outdoor fabrics for hunters so equivalent sort of along the baseline of what um Arcteris was offering um the the, the group sika gear came sort of offering cortex and other layers and I, I think it was one of their original or early um pieces that, uh, that they, they had like um i guess they had some, some basically guys in full sika gear now this maybe i'm getting my stories mixed up but the point of it is there was uh, these Marines jumped into cold water wearing all synthetic layers. Um, and uh, and then they basically got out of the water, did their best to get like get get the water out of their clothing, but still wore the same layers and then just fired up the furnace using um, sugar and just kind of kept on going and fired up their internal furnace and then basically were able to push all the moisture out to where they actually had dried out their clothing. And they were trying to demonstrate the effectiveness of synthetic layering systems. And I believe it was a sicker Deal that, that showed, showed this story. I could be totally off base, but if I am, I apologize. Either, either way, uh, the concept yeah, being, totally. and then maybe the question to you is: it, is it a reasonable approach? Like say, if I do get drenched and soaking wet, and part of my plan is to just, you know, maybe wring out my clothing as quickly as I can, get it back on. Now I've got damp clothing, and now I'm, you know, just feeding myself a nice, even pace of sugar and and quality food and water and, and, and hydrating, and then just hiking it out. Um, is that a reasonable approach to trying to? get past and dry out. Yeah. And
1: it it, particularly, if you've got the synthetic base layers or the, like the Merino wool, obviously it, uh, does the same sort of thing. It's like, it's designed or it is designed to keep you wet warm when it's wet. So that's why like that stuff is like getting out the excess moisture that is still going to perform the same function. Um, and the process of moving, you're going to be generating body heat. And that's, that's, I think what's creating the sort of like drying impact. If you are stationary, um, I think you'd want to still be getting out of that wet because it's going to, you're not going to have that body heat that's kind of like keeping the, because the moisture on the skin is still going to have some evaporative cooling. So as mm-hmm. long as you are able to keep moving, it's going to counteract that and you're you're going to be okay. Yeah. Um, but as long as you've got that like base layer of a material that's going to keep you warm while it's still damp and you're moving, because um, that's the other pieces, you know, skiing, ski touring in the winter, the biggest thing is like you get cold, how do you stop? yourself from going hypothermic start moving again you know start start going um so as long as you've got the ability to keep like the furnace fired up and keep yourself moving that's going to go a long way and I think it's you know the same thing you do anytime you get to camp it's like it's particularly anywhere in BC if you're hiking off trail your feet are going to be wet at least that's been my experience they're sort of like you can fight it for as long (laughs) but I've yet to have a trip where I've successfully finished like some off-trail bushwhacking um in this province without some kind of damper wet feet and so i'm always taking those socks off and like you know i've got the dry ones to put on to when i go to sleep um so it's that same kind of principle it's like when you're going to stop moving and you've got some time getting into the dry clothes or the dry layers is, is super useful
0: right on okay so now now let's, so just to reinforce that so if you if you can keep moving you can probably dry out with layers but if you're stopping and you're wet you got to get out of those wet clothes to prevent um getting um, yeah, any, any potential onset of hypothermia or just getting cold. The other thing that I do in, in preparation or in prevention is I pack a little tarp with me and a little, a little sill tarp. It's a one pound, uh, tarp. And every time I see the clouds start building up and I can feel the wind coming in, I know it's going to rain on me for a bit. Um, I just throw that tarp up just a quick, just pitch, pitch, pitch it quick and then sit underneath my tarp and get my little wood, my little stove going and have a cup of tea and wait out those storms. Cause, I mean, that's where, that's how you get wet often. It's just, you know, getting caught in a rainstorm. So I try try to avoid getting caught in a rainstorm best I can when I'm hunting.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that prevention is a great thing to do. Um, And then that tarp actually like kind of feeds into uh, one of the things that is critical if someone's starting to move into a more severe state of hypothermia. Um, Because once someone, when someone goes out of that kind of, they can move around, they're thermoregulating and they just need some energy and kind of to get moving again um that's where we start to see uh like the mental the mental status change and that's where things can get dangerous because they can be tripping and falling you're you're sort of on that cascade downwards towards it getting pretty bad um and so the big thing there is um the hypothermia wrap which is kind of the bread and butter I think of a lot of wilderness medicine um and it's basically like a three three to four piece system um and I think the, the number of pieces you have depends a lot on like what other gear you're bringing and what kind of trip you're doing. So, you know, whether or not you've got your tent, sleeping pad, sleeping bag, or whether it's kind of a day, day trip. Um, but the kind of key pieces here are you've got a vapor barrier, um, that's going to go against the skin or against the body. And that's kind of your, your emergency blanket, you know, and this can be the, you know, few dollar Coglin's one from Canadian Tire. This can be the much more expensive, like survive outdoors longer ones that MEC has. There's like a wide spectrum. Um I think it's kind of, there's any kind there, but you've got that vapor barrier layer. You've got an insulative layer around that. And this could be your sleeping bag. This could be jackets. This could be, again, there's commercially purchasable bivvies that can go in here. And then you've got kind of an outer waterproof layer. So this would be your sill tarp. Um, or if you're, you know, in a pinch, this can be the fly from your tent, um, things like that. Uh, and so what you really want to do there is like, if you're seeing someone kind of move through the stages or you've come across someone and they are, you're, you think they, they may be in a, in a significant state of hypothermia, you want to get, you know, same thing, wet clothes off. Then you want to get them wrapped up in the vapor barrier, put that inside the insulative layer, wrap that whole thing in the waterproof layer on the outside. Um, and if you, have it, it's great to uh, put like a sleeping pad in there just to make sure because if they're going to be on the ground, creating that insulative layer between. Um, and so inflatable pads are great or the closed cell um, foam pads also work really good. Um, but yeah, those things because one of the things that we often forget in terms of heat loss is we also lose heat loss conductively. So mm-hmm. I'm sure I've definitely done this where I've gone out on a late season trip in the fall Uh, and I've been like, I can totally get away or an early season trip in the spring. And it's like, I can get away with my ultra lightweight, summer inflatable, no R value sleeping pad. Mm -hmm. And then you put it down and temperature drops below zero and you can't get any sleep because the whole night you're freezing. Any part of your body that's pressing against the ground is freezing cold. Mm -hmm. Um, so same thing is going to happen to someone in this situation. So we want to just get that insulation in there. Um, and I think it's here, it's like good to think about particularly, you know, we're gonna talk more about building your kid. But the thing about hypothermia app is like, what are you already carrying that can do this job? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, do you have things that can and do you actually need to go out and buy and carry something extra um, for this? And I think we are often carrying a lot of things that can already do this sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, you want to get the person into that hypothermia app, and you're going to monitor them. And if they improve, then you might be able to treat them as if they have mild hypothermia. So that's when you're going to give them the sugary drinks, warm water, that kind of thing, get them up and moving once they start to improve. If they don't, that's when you are thinking more about, okay, this is a pretty serious emergency and we need to start thinking about evacuation. Um, But yeah, that hypothermia wrap is kind of this, this like bread and butter piece that um, is the, the kind of go-to. And oftentimes also it's the sort of thing that you're going to want to, if you have some other issue that is immobilized, someone who's in your group. So, you know, a break or you know some kind of other injury that they're not going to be able to be moving around. Preventatively putting someone in one of these wraps can go a long way to ensuring they don't become hypothermic
0: mm-hmm. uh, down the line. So the old the old story of like you know skin on skin contact, you know, bundling up with your hunting buddies is not necessarily the right treatment for. Uh, um,
1: You can inside you inter- of that hypothermia wrap. It's going to yeah, help. So, you so you adding, invite your hunting buddies yeah. in there
0: and. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Adding
1: like adding extra heat sources into a hypothermia wrap can be super helpful. Um, so, you know, like skin on skin contact, if you, if you don't want to go that far, just a a water bottle full of boiling water or some of those little hand warmer packs that you shake up, those in there will also go a long way to helping. Um, the thing to think about that is if you're going to introduce external heat, um, the think about putting them in places where they're going to be the most effective, um, so high circulation and so groin, neck, armpits, putting warm things there, it's going to, there's a lot of blood that goes into those places. So if you put it there, it's going to get distributed through the body a lot better.
0: Okay. Okay. I could go a lot. I could, we could <laughs> go a lot further down. We could the rabbit route. hole this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But but okay. That that is important. And I think again, it's a preventative thing where you know you just make that. I, I like the I like the idea of the wrap and uh, and and creating those layers and and the principle of just yeah, don't let people get any 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 colder and try to get their furnace going to try to create their own heat inside the burrito there and uh, and if not, you got to climb in there with them and that's that can yeah. But hey, that's uh it better to be avoid uh uh it all together with good prevention So, okay well that, that's that's great and that and that's actually a new thing for me i, I hadn't heard about the burrito idea so um uh cool Let, let's move on to the the, the second one and, and i think we talked a little bit about just um you know stabilizing um possible breaks or sprains and uh yeah so what are your some thoughts about what that on on, a, on one of these sort of one day or the three day or type of hunts
1: yeah, I think the big thing, uh, first of all, is that anytime you've got that kind of an injury, um, you want to try and get a good look at it because you want to try and assess like is where is this on the spectrum? Is this a sprain, strain, break? Because I think you're going to probably make very different decisions, particularly in terms of can we keep doing this trip based on where it is along there. Um, so... The, the sort of first principle there being kind of like expose and examine. So kind of try to, you know, take the jacket off and look at the wrist, roll the pant legs up, open the boot up, take a look at the foot. Um, and really what kind of we're looking for there typically is um, in a break, you're typically going to see deformity um, or much more significant, like, quick swelling redness and kind of bruising color than you would in some of these other injuries. So in my mind, that's usually what like in these kinds of that I'm looking for. I'm looking for like, is this a break? Is this not? Um, the other test that can be helpful, it's obviously none of these are kind of, you know, a hundred percent determinant. Like it's good if someone, you know, even finishes a trip and they have nagging pain that they go get an x-ray to get whatever it is checked out. But oftentimes, particularly with ankles, um the test that we'll do in the field is can you can it weight bear? can you stand on it um and that's often that's sort of a simplified version of an in-hospital uh assessment that'll get done to determine break versus kind of tendon or
0: muscle injury um i'm assuming that if you can't put weight on it then likely it's broken
1: yeah or it's that's, severely yeah. sprained
0: <laughs> to, to the point that you can't put weight on it either way it's yeah. pretty unhappy
1: yeah, and, and it's a pretty easy test and helpful test for wilderness things because, like, if you can wait there, you can probably walk on it. And mm-hmm. that at least means you can get to camp, if not potentially can go further uh, and makes our kind of consideration around evacuation decisions different down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the first thing, is, like, figure out how severe it is. And obviously, there's going to be different um, different bones and parts of the body where severity and risk is increased. So the more... and typically we're dealing more with the less severe ones. So it's like ankles and wrists, I think, are kind of the zones where we're seeing like the most it's either rolled ankles or the fall, you know, the heavy backpack slip, hands go out in front and injure yeah. the forearms and wrists kind of thing. That's kind of the, the highest amount of, of injuries that we're, we're seeing. Um, and in those, yeah, usually those we're trying to determine like, is this a trip ending injury or is this something that we can kind of stabilize in place? Um, and so for sprains, usually we can kind of stabilize them. And that's where we're going to be using, uh, you know, things like a tensor bandage, uh, to wrap, to give some extra stability to it, to give some extra support. Um, and in the, uh, in terms of giving relief, um, this is where we can think about cold. So, you know, if you have snow and ice around you can use that, but also this is where the sticking the foot in the cold moving river to, Mm -hmm. to, to give some relief can be helpful. Um, uh, the main thing to think about there is that, you know, when I was a kid, the treatment for any kind of sprained anything was to keep ice on it forever. Um, and one of the things to remember is that swelling is actually our body trying to heal that. So if we're constantly keeping it cold, uh, we're not actually letting the body do its job mm. and, and heal it. So we want to kind of be a little bit considerate about that. Um, the other thing to consider here, particularly for the ankle side of things is that, um, Be careful about taking a sprained or injured foot in general out of a boot for very long. Um, so typically, what I'll do is like I want to take it off, move, remove it a little bit, so I can see what's going on and make a quick determination. Then I'm going to want to put it back on because that ankle is going to want to swell in any one of these injuries. And it's I've had situations, and it's you know really common with ski boots, but I think like any kind of bigger boot, this can be a problem with. You take it off. You know you have the foot out because it's more comfortable and they're like okay like you feel like you can walk again they're like yeah and then you're like all right let's get that boot back on and like oh no like ankles the size of a grapefruit boots not going back on and so now you've got an exposed foot and maybe you're not at camp and you have you know however many kilometers and you're like okay now i have a new problem to solve (laughs) um so yeah think about that and also remembering that in all these situations what we're going to be we want to splint things and immobilize them as best as we can so like reducing certain types of movement and big boots often are themselves a really good splint so actually like tying it up wrapping the bandage around the boot uh to give extra support is actually going to do a really good job of splinting something um and this is then also for these where uh the having the the trekking pole can be helpful so it's a quick and easy crutch going in um and also in terms of that prevention side of things the trekking pole i find really helps particularly with heavy loads of reducing the potential of rolled ankles and kind of wrist falls
0: totally I, um the, uh, the ski pole thing i think it's worth you know it, it's something I, I actually i think i was 40 when i started hiking with with ski poles 100 percent hunting with ski poles 100 percent of the time and like i don't know what i was thinking for the past like for the previous 20 something years of, of cruising around the mountains because i just I, I i i just have a ski pole or two with me at all times when i'm hunting and and i can't think like there's so many times it saved me from having a major spill and and certainly I just 100% rely on it and I insist on it within my hunting community of, of folks who are hunting with me that if you're not carrying a ski pole, you're taking a, you're taking a risk you don't need to take care of. And uh, there's also, you know, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, things that can do multiple things. And a ski pole is, is amazing because like not only does it make, keep you from following and busting your face up or wrists or whatever else, um, it, uh, you can shoot off of it, which is, you know, it makes you a more ethical shooter because you can stabilize your shooting position really quickly. And then the last piece is I mean, more and more tents incorporate your ski pole. So now you're saving a couple ounces of weight because you, you might be pitching your tent with your ski pole as well. Um, and then, like you said, you can maybe use this part as your first aid. So how would you use a ski pole in your first aid kit?
1: Yeah, I think like one of the big ones is um, they make great splints. So that's sort of the next stage within this is, you know, if you actually have a fracture or a break we're um, right in here. Uh, what you're going to want to do is splint it. And so the the basic principle of splinting is that we want to immobilize the joint above and all of the joints below any break. Um, So, you know, forearm, wrist, you're going to immobilize the elbow and immobilize the hand down. You're going to immobilize the knee down for like a lower leg break, that kind of thing. Um, So the ski poles are great because they are already rigid. They're extendable. Um, I... You know, I, I like the Z pole ones because they're super lightweight. But in terms of first aid, the the ones that actually slide in collapsible and you can actually pull completely apart into two or three mm-hmm. pieces, yeah. um, I find are a lot more versatile because then you've actually got with one pole you have three rigid pieces um, that that alone can be enough to to splint a number of things. Um, so yeah, that's sort of like one really big one is is the splint. Um, so using that as kind of the rigid part of your splint in there. Um, obviously you're going to want to pad it, put some, you know, jackets or bandages or whatever you have between that and, and whatever you're splinting. Cause a hard ski pole pushing into a broken bone is not going to be a, <laughs> a comfortable situation for anyone. Um, not that there's ever going to be a ton of comfort in uh, a break in, in the backcountry. Um, uh, but we like to try to, to not make it worse if we can. Uh, and then I think the other one is, um, that they're a ready crutch. Um, And so a lot of the time, particularly with the more minor end, um, the kind of sprains, um, rolled ankles, stuff like that, just that little bit of extra support, that ability to kind of take some weight off the leg uh, can be super helpful for kind of moving, moving down the trail Um, on the one hand. And then what it also can allow you to do um, is that uh, is that if you say, for example, you're out with your partner and they hurt their foot and, and they need to go what you might need to do in order to get to camp that night is take some of their weight. You might need to kind of take whatever, some of whatever they're carrying into your pack. And therefore you're increasing your weight and having that pull for yourself, knowing that you've, you know, doubled the weight of your pack is going to make it much less likely that kind of you get, you get hurt because, um, you know, within all things kind of, I think this is a common thing that comes up in first aid and rescue and wilderness survival, survival kind of conversations is always kind of thinking about the number one rule being don't make another victim. Um, so we always want to be thinking about things that if we are providing first aid or in, you know, are in the kind of the, the rescuer position within these, we also want to be thinking about not doing things that are going to mean there's two of us injured. Cause if we're partner rolls their ankle, they're going out, we take all of their weight. And then we take a fall and break a wrist or roll an ankle now suddenly we've got no help 2 we've got no rescuer in two patients um which is a a much more challenging situation to deal with
0: yeah we talked about a lot a lot about that on, on our uh pack course and just how do you how do you make sure that there's you don't have two victims now three victims now we're all victims <laughs> yeah it's
1: a it's a it's a fast cascade on the water
0: yeah for sure for sure okay well that's pretty cool um any other things in our kit that we're going to have available like on our in our hunting kit or back backcountry kit that would be helpful for stabilizing a break or a severe uh sprain you think of any other tools we would have
1: yeah so one thing um obviously this is going to vary uh pack to pack but most backpacks uh, particularly like bigger ones they have a little foam Something foam and or metal that is providing the stability of the frame in the back there. Um, and uh, that can be a super useful for, for a splint as well as for padding. Um, so uh, I know things like some of the more like lightweight, ultralight, like um, more Dyneema end packs. They typically have two metal uh, frame pieces that can come out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of their other ones will have about like a quarter inch thick foam pad in the back. Yeah. Um, so those are great. Uh, you can pull those out. Like they can even, you know, be a soft splint. So you can wrap that around a forearm, um, and have that be your splint. You can wrap that on a forearm, reinforce it with the trekking pole, and then you've got a more rigid splint that's going on. Um, so those are super useful. Uh, I think also a lot of people will carry like a little folding, um, or rolled up foam pad to sit on. Um, so there's those little closed cell ones. Those things also do a great job there. Um, within there uh so same sort of thing there and then i think if the if you wanted to add something to your kit in terms of splint building the far end that's where the sam splint would come in so sam splints uh you can buy them in most outdoor stores they come in a lot of the kind of like bigger multi-day first aid kits you can buy but it's essentially like it's a moldable aluminum splint um so they kind of usually come kind of folded up in a Uh, in a little vacuum pack, you take it out, they unfold. They're usually anywhere from two to four feet, depending on the size of them. Um, And as you, if you camber them, so you kind of shape them into a bit of a U, they go from being these like flexible to nice rigid pieces. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those are great within there. Um, I think the other thing to always remember is like your knife, if you're carrying like a little bush saw, like a silky saw, those are great tools. Um, If you need to go to like bigger Particularly, some of the potential bigger injuries like leg breaks. Um, oftentimes, not a lot of what we're physically carrying with us uh, is gonna gonna suffice in there. Um, but if we're surrounded by deadfall or we're, we've got some trees around, we're potentially gonna be able to get in there and like find nice straight pieces of wood that we can then take the pointy bits off, round down, and use those. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether we're kind of making crutches, this is also where you could get into things for stretchers, stuff like that. Um, but remembering that some of those tools is not necessarily just like what we have, but what we have that we could make other things with um, that are super useful in there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A little tiny saw. I, I, I've i always carried um, on my Swiss Army knife, I've got one little saw on it and that Everything else on the, actually I only carry that because of that little saw. So what I actually <laughs> yeah. should do is just get a little tiny saw that's this long, like I'm showing you, but for our listeners, maybe like three inches long, just enough to easily cut a one inch bow or one and a half inch bow from a tree. And that can just start give, give you so many little things. I mean, I use it all the time for, you know, cutting a toe, you know, for towing a deer off the hill, like a nice green stick and just you know, be able to have a nice tough stick to tow a deer off the hill. But yeah, like you said, to build, um, your splints or or a crutch or or just firewood for a fire three inches of saw will go a long way in in helping you deal with these situations for sure yeah uh,
1: the only the one other thing um that i think it's good to have in any kit um because they're again one of those like you can do a lot of things with these uh is ski straps so those yeah. vole or titan straps that have some elasticity to them um they're great for hundreds of things you can use them to fix any number of things Um, but particularly for splinting, um, they give you a good quick option that you've got that ability to put some tension in, to hold something on. Um, I use those, so I've got that pad. I've got those ski straps that goes on the arm, the ski straps kind of go around the pole that creates kind of a nice package right in there. Um, so those are great. And then I think the, the only other thing to think about would be, uh, in addition to being able to splint, it's great to think about having something in your kit that you could build a sling out of. Um, so that's thinking about the shoulder. So something where uh, I'm sure everyone's either had or seen the person walking around that has an arm or shoulder injury and the, the arm is in a sling walking out of the hospital. Um, so a triangular bandage is a thing you can buy throw in your kit and have, um, you can also make triangular bandages by taking some old bed sheets, washing them ideally cause <laughs> you're potentially using it for a first aid kit and then cutting kind of, you know, square some big squares out of it, cut those in half to get a nice triangle. Um, or, you know, your jacket can make a pretty good sling. You just kind of zip it up, use the sleeves to tie around the shoulder and get the arm kind of think about in the hood area holding in there. Um, that's a great one, um, for immobilizing any arm injury, but in particular thinking about, um, you know, shoulder dislocation or a clavicle injury, cause we can't really splint that part of the body. And so that sling is really, what's going to help stabilize that and give a lot of relief uh, yeah. and allow someone to, to move around kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Right on. Cool. okay, that that's that's fantastic. And um the only thing I would add to it, or that's in my kit. I'll ask you about it is uh, i I usually bring an electrician's tape with me, uh, a roll of it, and I, I just love it because it it's kind of a, a all purpose tape to solve problems, whether it's gear problems and taping things back together. It's got lots of elasticity in it. um and it seems to always hold its stick. I find that most of my my first aid tape just seems to lose its stick after a few seasons, and I don't necessarily replace my first aid equipment nearly enough. Um, What are your thoughts on on using, say, electrical electrician's tape in the in that application of sort of just strapping stuff for uh, yeah splints and whatnot?
1: I think it's great because it's got that same elastic quality that the ski strap does. Um, And the other reason that elastic quality is really helpful uh, for any time you're kind of sealing up an injury is we got to assume that injury is going to swell, and so tape like electrician's tape or those ski straps they're going to mm-hmm. have a little bit of stretch to them, yeah. so it's not going to kind of constrict in on the injury whereas other sorts of tape don't have that um or like you know really tightly pulled rope things like that they're not going to have that same kind of give that you know might help particularly if it's going to be a fairly long time that that's going to be on before you can get
0: get out yeah right on okay good 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 okay let's move on to the last scenario where we were sort of talking about that we wanted to touch on and that's um you know cuts and punctures and i I've, the, the, probably the main thing I've dealt with in a first aid scenario with in hunting is when I've either cut myself and kind of looked at and said, oh shoot, like do I have to go seek medical attention or can I just clean that up enough and hold pressure on it long enough so that it seals itself. And, um, the only real scary, I had a pretty bit of a scary one a couple of years ago when one of my elk hunting partners, it was sort of late coming back from his hunt and we were wondering where he was and couldn't get him on the radio. And he eventually showed up in camp like hours later and he had just his hand was just like there's blood still pulsing out of his hand and he had shot an elk. and was cutting it up and, and lost his knife and uh, and it slipped through his fingers and, and, and cut him pretty deep to the point that it, you know, he was, he was trying to finish up the job and get a quarter of the elk out. Um, but yeah, he had a, head, a mess of a hand and that um, yeah, was kind of scary. And we were a long way from, from help for sure. So, um, so yeah, walk us through sort of cuts and, and punctures.
1: Yeah. I think the sort of like, again, Big spectrum of things. Um, and I think we start with like the most concerning and then towards the ones where we're thinking more about like managing it in the field. Um, and so, obviously, the most concerning thing is where you end up with what we typically refer to as like a deadly bleed. Um, and so, deadly bleeds are when you get a cut that uh, severs an artery. Uh, and so, that's where we're really concerned because the arteries are carrying blood away from the heart. So, they're operating under the highest pressure of any of the vessels in our body. Um, So when you cut one of those, you lose a lot of blood fairly quickly. Um, So we always want to be, and so those are the ones where if you get the cut, you're going to, you're going to know, you're probably going to know pretty quickly one, because it's going to be fairly deep. Um, There's not a ton of arteries in our body that are super close to the surface. So that like, you know, little slice across the skin um, concerning, you know, it's going to be visually disconcerting to someone, but it's not going to be that same sort of like life-threatening deadly bleed. Um, so we get that cut, um, it's going to be, uh, deep and then you're going to see blood kind of pulsing out of it. Um, so you can get the sort of Hollywood version of this, which is the spray. So like when the hand comes off, it spurts up like a little fountain. Um, uh, but a lot of the time it's also just sort of like, it's a pulsing. And so if you think about like what a heartbeat feels like, you'll look at it and you'll kind of see it moving like that as it kind of comes up and bubbles up through there. Um, so those are the con- really concerning ones. And so what we want to be doing is putting, first of all, we want to get like direct pressure or we say well-aimed direct pressure on that as soon as possible. Um, ideally, uh, if this is, if you're doing this on someone else in particular, um, if you have kind of nitrile gloves, uh, to, to put on before super helpful, just cause again, we always want to be thinking about like, don't make another subject. Um, and You know, particularly if you do a lot of things in the outdoors, you're going to have a lot of those like little cuts all over your fingers, like the little kind of like nicks and scratches where the fingernail hits in. So there's a lot of places for a pathogen to potentially get in. Um, Obviously, if you know it, your friend, you know, your partners really well, maybe less of a concern than if it's someone you don't know so well or a stranger or, you know, if you're responding on ambulance, we're obviously super concerned about these kinds of things. But it's always good practice just to think about barriers. And so for me, I've always got some of those gloves in a really easy to reach pocket or a really easy to reach spot um, on me when I'm going uh, into into the wilderness, so that it's not something I have to think too much about.
0: And again, multi purpose, um, you know, these those those plastic gloves, you can actually cut the fingers and turn them into reeds for your uh, elk culls. So, uh, this, the, the rubber rings is actually what you blow through on, uh, on, wow. on the, uh, bomb elk call. So again, I, I, always have a couple of sets with me when I'm elk, elk hunting. Uh, and again, a lot of people, you put them on to clean animals and probably good practice to, again, yeah. like, as you say, you're going to be diving in both hands into an animal, uh, to prevent, um, yeah, potential pathogens from the animal or anything and, and, um, getting into your hands, uh, why not put gloves on? I, I haven't been super good about doing that over my lifetime of hunting, but it's something I'm going to build into my practice, but certainly I have some, uh, uh, when I'm in the park as a park manager, I've always got, you know, a couple of, I've always have them ready at hand and in my truck. And, uh, you know, I've always got a, a few just right handy. Cause if you ever come across an accident, the first thing you want to do is put on your gloves and see if you can help. Right.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, you want to get that on and then get that well-aimed direct pressure. So, uh, what that kind of looks like ideally is, um, you know, you've got one hand on the wound, your other hand on top of it, and you are putting your the weight of your body behind that kind of thing. Um, or if you're able to say it's a wrist, you're like holding around it. So you really want to like, it's it's a fair amount of pressure that you want to get on there. Um once you've got that on with just hands, um, ideally, if you've got someone else with you, or, or you've got a handy, that's when you next want to start introducing gauze into it. So um, I like to keep uh, a couple like bigger pieces um for this kind of thing. Um abdominal pads are kind of the biggest end of it, but like, you know, there's there's a whole range of it. But you want to get that gauze on there as soon as possible because what that gauze is going to help do is it's going to help to promote clotting. So it's gonna the blood's gonna stick to it. It's gonna create kind of a sticky thing in there. It's gonna help to sort of hopefully promote a clot forming within there. Um, so you want to get one pad of gauze on and you're looking to see does it slow down. And the fact that most bleeds are controlled by direct pressure like once you get that well-aimed direct pressure that gauze that's going to control most bleeds um and then as the gauze gets soaked you can start adding more on top the one thing we don't ever want to be doing is pulling gauze off so it's like you know the Mm. first piece goes on and gets soaked with blood if you pull that off any of the work that the body's done to clot in there um gets undone and so that's we typically want to just add dressings on top of each other um Typically, the way we teach it in wilderness first aid courses is you sort of go one piece of gauze, one good thick piece of gauze that gets soaked. You put a second one over top. If that one gets soaked up, you're starting to think this is an uncontrolled bleed um, and it's pretty severe. And that's when you'd be thinking about moving to pressure points and tourniquets. Um So pressure point is just thinking about like if you think about the you want to like take a minute, to think about the physiology of the person. So if you've cut an artery, the pressure point would be thinking about going above trying to figure out where that artery is in the body and put like a c- couple fingers and really press down hard and you're trying to like clamp off the flow above
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, so it's sort of like if you have like a cut hose going up above it and trying to a spot to kink kind of
0: in the kind of hose out. yeah
1: yeah yeah kink it obviously that can be quite tough particularly in some parts of the body like on the wrist that might be easier to do than say if someone has this going on in their leg and it's their femoral artery that's been clipped mm-hmm. um, it's going to be pretty hard to get in there and kind of actually get in and, and do that Um, so that's where tourniquets are a really good tool to
0: think about, uh, both before we go to tourniquets, I'm super interested about tourniquets, but I, I, I'm thinking about, I'm dealing with a severe bleed. It's pulsing blood out. I can't control the blood after putting a couple of gauzes on it. At what point am I hitting my in reach SOS button, um, in this conversation?
1: I think it, the reality is, is like, if you've had, if you're not able to control it with those two pieces of gauze, um, you've got a pretty serious situation because whether it's because, um, you're going to have to do something intervention wise that's going to require evacuation. So putting a tourniquet on is sort of, you're going to need to get out at that point in time. Um, or you're starting to think about blood loss. You know, we've got between three and five liters of blood moving around in our body. And once you start losing, one to two liters of that, you're going to start to see, you know, serious issues with, with shock. Um, so I think like any point in time, if you're getting there, that's, that's a pretty clear sign that you're going to probably start thinking about hitting that. But at the same time, controlling that bleed is, should be the priority over hitting the in-reach button. Um, so if you, you know, this is, this is where it always comes down to sort of like, group management. So if you've got enough people that someone can be off doing the 911 call or activating the inReach, awesome. But if it's like you and one other person, um, that's sort of like a, you've got an immediately life-threatening situation that needs to be controlled before kind of moving on. Um, and the one other thing I just sort of forgot to mention that we can also do before thinking about a tourniquet or thinking about this is if you can, elevating the, the cut above the level of the heart. Um, cause that's just going to mean that, you know the blood flow is working against gravity to get up to there so if the arm is above the head or above the heart less blood is going to be able to go in there so it may become easier for you to control that bleed um and help that clot to form in there
0: okay right on yeah i was just uh, reflecting on those those moments to call probably so the the one thing i would encourage everybody to do and it's something that i mean I think we're all progressing towards these this amazing technology of inReach or whatever device you have. But the the one I have again, I'm I'm showing you on the screen is two inches, or not even an inch and a half by an inch and a half. Uh, and uh, you know, I have it strapped to my chest, uh, right, like within my. I can almost act. I can almost action it with my tongue. It's so close to my face, and I would expect that all my hunting partners basically have the same unit attached to their bodies, exposed, just so that. Yes, if we're, you know, at any point, it's, it's not a huge time, uh, not a huge deviation for whatever you're doing to hit your the button on your chest and and, and, and send for help in those emergency situations because there's no, there's no point on, if it's in the top of your pack somewhere, it's, you know, it's far as, it's, a, it's, it's just two steps, two or three steps away, it's a whole lot easier to have it right on your body.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of sayings in, uh, wilderness or just even like pre-hospital medicine that a lot of the time the best treatment someone needs is jet fuel or diesel. You know, they <laughs> need to be put on a vehicle and get evacuated out of there. That's um, kind of you know, theory. diesel therapy is a, is a common term, uh, then yeah. when we talk about
0: it. Yeah, I've got, I actually got a question for you kind of towards the end when we start talking about training, but we're kind of getting there. So we should try to move, move towards some of these concluding um, pieces that I'd like to get to. Uh, but let, let's talk quickly just about sort of those more manageable cuts and, and uh, what we should be doing and kind of what the threshold is for starting to worry about it versus just letting it kind of heal on its own and be a little uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. And so the we often talk about or the way the best way to think about it is sort of high risk and low risk wounds. Um, and so, a high risk wound is going to be a like anything that we've had to uh, anything where we've had to control a deadly bleed. So, anything where we've had an arterial cut and we've had to put multiple pieces of gauze and bandage it, or we've had to use a tourniquet. Because um, in those situations, there's a there's an internal problem that likely needs a surgical solution. So, like a cut artery um, likely is something that is not necessarily going to heal that well without. Uh, getting some some advanced medical support. Um, And so ideally, that person needs to kind of go out to a hospital. Um, The other things that we think about when high risk wounds is one is like any sort of significant or severe burn. So a burn that is deeper than the first couple layers of skin. So anything where you get beyond sort of like just redness and blistering, where you start to have charred skin, things like that. Um, because in those ones, you're dealing with potential nerve damage, a lot of other things, infection risk, that kind of stuff is going on. Um, the third one that I think uh, when we talk about high-risk wounds that I think is uh, particularly uh, important to think about for hunters is um, we consider a high-risk wound any wound where there is a high probability of um, infectious pathogens getting in. So the, what we usually say there is where the the cutting instrument has passed through another like living thing into the, the person who's been cut. Um, and so this feels like the one where it's like you're processing, cleaning the animal and the knife slips through and you cut hand open. Um, and we're thinking there is like, there's a lot of potential pathogens within the animal that have now been introduced into the bloodstream. Um, this doesn't necessarily mean like, oh crap, I did this. I need to stop what I'm doing, hit the in reach, leave this here and go. But it becomes something where we're like, okay, This is not something that I'm gonna spend 10 more days out in the field before I go and potentially get it looked at. Um, Because we're worried, basically there is like, we're worried about infection developing. um, And that's kind of what leads us into low risk wounds and wound management is usually what we talk about. Uh, And so the goal with wound management is primarily to prevent, uh, first prevent localized infection. And then if we have localized infection, prevent that from becoming systemic infection. Uh, Because systemic infection is where we start to have severe problems, and again, it can lead us into sepsis and all kinds of other life-threatening things. Um, So first thing is that anytime we have those minor wounds, we want to clean them. Um, And the basic process here is you want to get a lot of sterile water. Um, So, you know, get the pot, boil the water off, or get your, uh, your filter, filter a good couple liters ready to go. Um, uh, ideally having something where you can put a little pressure behind the water. Um, mm-hmm. so whether that's a little, one of those little sort of like non needled, but those little irrigation syringes, uh, those are great if you've got one in your first aid kit, but you can also do this with a Ziploc bag that you cut the mm-hmm. corner off of. Um, you can do this with a, a hydration pack where you just squeeze the pack and hold the other end. Um, and you just want to be able to get a little pressure because the first thing we're going to do is we're going to irrigate the wound and knock any dirt. stuff out of it so get any of that visible kind of stuff out um then we're going to use tweezers uh and pick out big big things so you know if you've got like little sliver stuff like that pick out those sticks if you've got um you know when you were a kid and you fell on a bike or skateboarding and got those like little sticks of rock stuck in like that kind of thing coming out just want to pick out those big pieces um and then the third step is probably the, uh, it's going to be the most uncomfortable, and this is the one where you might want someone else to do this for you because it's pretty hard to do this on yourself and actually uh, go through all the way, is where you're going to want some kind of scrubbing instrument, and you're going to want to scrub out the wound to get those like little, like any of the little bits of foreign matter out. Um, so, a you know, a toothbrush that you've cut kind of half the, the bottom off is a great small thing to throw in the kit for this, Obviously, don't use the toothbrush you're actually brushing (laughs) your teeth with. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully for obvious reasons or um, the one that you clean your bike chain with. Um, But yeah, you're just going to want to go in and kind of scrub it out. Once that's like really nice and clean, then you're just going to want to kind of bandage the wound with clean, sterile gauze and dressings over top of that. Um, That's kind of your basic. One of the big things, and it it took uh, till I was in my 30s to learn this. But one of the things is, um, this is where you can also add in like an antibiotic ointment, so like a polysporin kind of thing. Big thing is, uh, when I was a kid, it was always you'd rub the polysporin on the cut. Um, and the thing that I never learned was that most polysporin and these antibiotic creams are uh, an oil base, so they're like a petroleum jelly. And so if you rub that onto the wound itself, you actually lock uh, you create sort of like a barrier over the wound and you trap anything inside of it and create a warm, wet environment, which is exactly what bacteria and infections want to grow. Um, so ideally, you want to put that kind of around the outside of the wound, put the bandage over top, and that's going to let the antibiotics go into the wound without creating that seal. Hmm. Um, you can do there The... The one thing you can consider at this point, which is typically, um, if you've got a wound that kind of, we've got tension lines in our body and I'm, I'm sure like you've gotten cuts like this, where if like, you cut yourself on a certain spot, like, especially like you see them like knuckles and things like that, um, the wound just doesn't want to close on its own. It just wants to kind of stay pulled open. I got like a really nasty one in my palm, uh, a couple summers ago where I was trying to carve a spoon out on a bike packing trip and I was doing those like hook blades and like right into the meat of my palm and it just wouldn't close. <laughs> Um, so for those, we want to think about using, um, butterfly, they're called like, sometimes you can buy them. They're called butterfly strips or steri strips, but also just strips of tape work. And what you're going to do is basically use tape sutures. So kind of pulling the skin together, you just put pieces of tape across it in order to kind of hold that wound closed. Uh, and this is, you know, on those wounds that you might look at and be like, oh, you're probably going to need stitches. Um, these sutures are a lot less invasive, thing we can do in the backcountry. You don't necess- you don't need any kind of special training. Uh, you don't need to cause uh, extreme pain to your friend by doing improvised backcountry surgery. You don't need to bust out the like sewing kit that you brought for your for your clothes or your tent and try to sew someone up with it. Uh, it works really well. And one one other thing you can add to your kit that's super helpful for this is there's something called tincture of benzoin or fryer's balsam that when you add it to skin, it um, makes skin really sticky. So a little bit of that and these kind of steri strips will close fairly large lacerations hmm. um, and let them kind of stay that way for the uh, the duration of a trip.
0: So what was that called? Um, again? Sorry, I, the tincture engine. of
1: benzoin or Fryer's balsam. I've Fryer seen it in balsam. a few like pharmacies, but typically I just ordered online.
0: So it just um, makes your skin more tacky.
1: Yeah, it's like it. It. I'm not sure if it just kind of like I'm not sure if it obstructs the pores, so the like you don't sweat out and like the typical thing there, but it. it It really, like, acts almost like, you know, the interaction between tape and skin with that on it is really this, like, solid bomber glue that holds on. Okay. Um, you can also, you know, some people will. I would suggest this is more for quite small because you're introducing a lot of chemicals, but this is where super glue, skin glue, that kind of stuff can be helpful for kind of closing up some of those smaller cuts. you just don't really want to be, you know, if you've got a big laceration, you don't want to be taking the like full tube of Gorilla Glue and dumping that all into your bloodstream because um, that might have a, a bad outcome. The all- other reason for it is um, when that person goes to the hospital, if they are going to need to get stitches or staples, they're going to have to pull all that glue out before they do um, it. And that's going to yeah. be a really, really bad time.
0: Yeah. But I guess it's sort of like one of those things. It's like, well, either close it up and get out of the woods or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um,
1: and then the last thing with this is, like, once you've got a wound managed and controlled, you really, what you're just doing is, like, managing and uh, watching out for infection. Um, and so, you know, everyone's probably had a little cut on your hand that's gotten infected. You know what it feels like. It starts to get warm. There's redness. You can have a little bit of pain that's kind of, like, out of proportion to the size of the wound. Um, and ideally, we avoid this by changing the dressings pretty regularly, you know, trying to keep that... Wherever the wound is, nice and dry and warm, um, just things like that. If it does start to happen, um, best thing to do is sort of like take off the dressing, if you can. Soak the soak the wound in um, sterile warm water. You know, clean it out again, and then just repeat the process and just try to stay on top of it, in front of it. Uh, the time where you start to get really worried is where you start to see um, like fever or kind of flu like symptoms kicking in. Um, Or you start to see things like red streaks uh, or the like the redness and swelling extending significantly beyond the wound, because that's where we start to get worried about systemic infection. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, you know, you're that's where you're thinking SOS button evacuation, um, kind of this person needs to get out because that's where potentially you're in a, a potentially life threatening situation developing.
0: Right on. Okay. Well, that's a good summary of three of, three of. I'd I say those are the top three things. It was interesting. I was doing some research ahead of this and um, 50% of hunters in North America, the injury um, that is most treated is from falling out of trees. So fairly common for, you know, the most of middle America, the way to hunt white-tailed deer is to sit, and, sit in a tree stand up in the air and, uh, well, 10, 15 feet up uh, off the forest floor and I guess uh, falling asleep and other things, getting in and out of it and people have tumbles. So. Um, not something that we deal with too much here in western you know, in, in, in western British Columbia particularly or and in, in, in most of our mountain hunting. We're very lucky that we can have a diversity of ways to hunt, but it typically puts us into probably more of that um hiking related injuries and like we've talked about on so far on this on this episode. So yeah, if the- I was to say like yeah. sorry.
1: Oh, I was going to say one thing that you one thing you'll probably have with you that if you are in a situation where there is a major fall, so whether it's out of a tree or down like a significant slope, um, if you're worried about a spinal injury, which is sort of one of the things we that is often like, oh, no, um, main thing you want to do at that point in time is you want to stop someone from aggressively moving their head side to side or up and down, which most people aren't going to want to do anyways, if they have a, a neck injury. Um, but the quick and easy thing you can do to, to stabilize that is um, if you have your puffy jacket or just something with some like loft to it, okay. uh, zip it up, fold the hood in, roll it up so you've got the sleeves sticking out, put mm-hmm. the kind of bulky part in the front of the neck, sleeves go around and then tie the sleeves around the front below the bulky part there, and you've got effectively something that is essentially the same as a uh, soft collar, um, hmm. which, you know, people will. Um, ski patrols will spend hundreds of dollars on them and that that will that's enough because it's going to remind the person not to move their head around and that's going to be a really useful way just to stabilize that injury.
0: So, oh, sorry, I just uh, tripped over my microphone cable here, but um so sort I I just I uh, got married last week and I wore an ascot. So it sounds like a, a puffy ascot. Effectively, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it. <is>. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay, you puffy down ascot. Right on. Okay, um so I'm thinking about so you know, as much as I'd like to bring everything in my first aid kit that I might bring to work with me, um, I'm, I'm conscious of, you know, first of all, having something that's, you know, the first aid kit that comes with me for my one day hunt, it's the same kit that comes with me for my 10 day hunts. Typically, um, I add a few repair things into my 10 day hunt, but kit, but I'm thinking about that, you know, and it's relatively light and small and simple. So I'm thinking what would be in your essential first aid kit for your day hunt or multi-day, um, near your your case, you know, backcountry adventures. So single day or multi-day, um, the, the essential one and maybe those two or three pieces that might come with you for your expedition stuff.
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, one thing is I always think about like exactly where am I going and like, what am I dealing with? And I will, I will adjust and edit my trip based a little bit on that. Um, partly also thinking about like, what do I have with me that I don't need to replicate? Um, so, you know, thinking about like, um, if I'm skiing and I've got pole skis, things like that, I'm probably going to bring, I might only bring one Sam splint versus something where I don't have that kind of stuff. Um, but I think the kind of the core things always is I've always got some accumulation of things that can create a hypothermia wrap. Um, so I've always got that with me. Um, and that might be things I'm taking anyway. So that might be my shelter, sleeping bag, sleeping pad, and I'm like, great, that's covered. Um, or it might be emergency blanket, thermal bivvy, you know, sill tarp, because I'm out ski touring for a day, things like that. And I'm I'm not carrying it with me. So I've always got those things. Um, I've always got a little bit of extra food and typically thinking about those like high calorie, quick to digest snacks. So I've got a mix of gels, bars, jello powder, that kind of stuff. Um, that's sort of the quick, quick response things. Um, I've got something to make a splint out of. Um, so either whether that's my Sam splint and ski straps or whether it's my poles, whether it's stuff on those fronts, I I'm usually carrying a Sam splint. Um, and that's mostly just because. They're quite light. They fold up. They disappear into my backpack. Like, I forget that they're in my bags some of the time. Um, and like, oh, I have three splints with me because I put ones in because I forgot this one was in the bottom of my pack. Um, and they're just super versatile. You can do a lot with them. They've also typically they'll have like five or six photos on them of how to build different splints. So they're a great little reference guide in that front. Yeah, I used to um, wedge
0: them into my pack frame. And I and for my work pack, I actually forget about them that they're there. And they actually add a little bit of stiffness on the back. So it actually adds a little bit of uh, lumbar support. And then if you ever need them, they're there.
1: Yeah, the other thing um, that if you're if you ever need to like hang out somewhere for a while, roll one up, uh, like kind of roll it around itself into a circle and it makes a great cup holder. (laughs) So if you're on like an off camber slope, you can get a nice little cup holder while you're waiting. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I've always got something to do a splint with. Um, then I'll typically have like two, two packages, one, which is my like hemorrhage control. So that's going to be a couple big pieces of gauze, my gloves. Um, maybe like sometimes I will carry a commercial tourniquet. Sometimes I will just make sure I've got some triangular bandages in it so I can improvise something. Um, for me, I'm usually thinking about that in terms of is what I'm doing, do I have the sorts of things with me that a major bleed could happen or like how likely is it based on the sport that I'm doing? Um, and then I'll have another little package. That's my wound care. So that's just going to be my like bandage, bandages, wraps, that kind of stuff. Um, in there. And then, uh, I will have, uh, a med kit, uh, which is mostly it's all over the counter medication. So it's your kind of pretty standard, you know, ibuprofen, Tylenol, aspirin, Benadryl, that kind of stuff. Um, You know, if I'm out with a group um, where I know people have some kind of medical issue, we'll definitely have a conversation beforehand to make sure we have, they have the medication they need. And if we should be carrying something extra just in case, Um, I think in the wilderness, the typical ones you're usually dealing with this in front is like allergies, Mm -hmm. anaphylaxis, so like EpiPens and then asthma stuff on the other end. Um, And then... Other big things is like I will carry, it's like, uh, aqua, like I'll have a big thing of aqua tabs or water treatment. Cause a lot of these things, you know, wound care, burn care, you just need a lot of clean water fairly quickly. Um, and because of that, I typically like to pack my, my first aid kit in something that can hold water. So usually that's either in like a small Nalgene, um, for my paddling first aid kits for day trips or a uh, dry bag. Um, cause in, you know, in the situation where someone gets a burn or I need to do some wound care, if I can just take that five liter dry bag, scoop up the water and then throw a handful of aqua tabs into it, let it sit. That's just going to be way easier than trying to, you know, hand filter as much water as I'm going to need to handle it there. Um, I'm sure there's things I take for different, like, you know, I'm all, I'm often trying things out. I'm putting things in. I kind of treat it like, I feel like there's like a thing that, uh, got popular a few years ago of like, you're supposed to, you know, check your closet every few months. And like, if there's something you haven't worn, you give it away. I kind of treat my first aid kit like that. It's like I put stuff in it. And it's like, if there's something that I'm not using, I'll be like, is this something that I'm carrying? Because um there's actually a possibility, you know, that kind of like low, like low possibility, but high risk event that could happen, and I need it? Or is this something that I can take out? And I'll kind of like, go through it or i'll ask myself the question is like is there something else i'm carrying that
0: can do this job um i've also got like the in my kit. i kind of i I don't know if i call it maintenance stuff but stuff that seems to get used fairly frequently like the aqua tabs yeah uh the the that my 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 gloves my plastic gloves or or and uh um and then you know Aspirin, maybe I usually probably keep a separate stash of, of drugs that I would use for just my um, day-to-day in, inflammation management um, of my knees or whatever. But um, there's those things that band-aids, uh, like, you know, my tape that kind of gets used for multi-purposes. So, but then there's the stuff like like the Sam splint, the triangle bandage. Those are the things that kind of stay in one kit that I try not to, try to always have there, that emergency blanket. Um, those are my, you know, my that sort of stay in that one bag. And so... Yeah. Always checking in on that maintenance kit to see what I pulled out of there and used.
1: Yeah. I usually kind of keep that even not in my first aid kit. I've usually got like another one that's sort of much more easy to access. That's kind of got that stuff in it. Um, but yeah, that's the stuff that's going to be the most used. It's also the stuff that, you know, if you go out with people regularly and they know you have it, um, (laughs) starts to get loaned out a lot. Uh, I feel like there's a lot, you know, um, where that stuff kind of happens. um, and yeah, and then I'll, you know, like other things is sort of very much I start to add and take things away seasonally or by activity. So winter, I might throw some heat packs in it, or like winter, I might be much more likely to carry like a stove on a day trip because I'm concerned about that. And it's thinking about it as a first aid supply. Um, and I think the other thing is what we already mentioned that's always in my kit that I think about as a first aid tool is a communications device is in reach if I'm going to be out of cell service. Phone and charger if I'm gonna be with cell service. Often I'll carry the in-reach with incel service, anyways, just because you never know. Um, but yeah, the the communication device and the extra battery pack for it feels like it's like the the big one just thinking about, you know, that really that unlikely but really bad situation. At the end of the day, like I can have all the first aid supplies in the world, but what that person really needs at that moment
0: is a fast ride. They need cam coming in a helicopter to like be the paramedic in the wilderness on site. So, so that's a great question. I kind of want to move towards that now. It's like, when is that threshold like towards calling for help and what should be the next steps after that? And I think this is building towards like you and I have sort of talked offline about maybe doing this and it's kind of um, like actually develop a course for hunters uh, building around this question and some of the stuff we've talked about today. Like what do hunters need to be, more prepared to go out uh, for a multi-day hunt uh, as in terms of training for first aid preparation and then just kind of the knowledge of what to do in those big scenarios and i think the one is like you know when when to call for help and then how to manage that time between calling for help and when someone arrives and some of the things you should do and i I don't think we need to go too deep into it because we're kind of we're up against we're over an hour now so but maybe the first thing is it's just like you know what's that threshold for hitting the help button and uh, when, when do you feel, when would you provide advice as to when that threshold is reached? And we kind of hit on it all through three of your scenarios, but maybe for review or for, or for comment anyways.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the big one is anytime you've got a life or limb threatening injury. So anything where, you know, someone could lose their life or, you know, or have a, like a, a life changing outcome, whether that's, you know, losing a limb or being hypothermic for a prolonged period of time. So I think like, within there, like, if you recognize that, that's the moment to hit it. Um I think the other one, for me, it's always when, um, when I recognize that the need of the subject outstrips my training or resources. Um So I've only ever had to call a helicopter in once, but it was on a uh, a pack rafting trip where there was only two of us and my partner was stuck in the middle of the river beyond the point where I could get a rope to him. And in that moment, I was that kind of recognition of like, I actually can't perform this rescue. Like we need something else at this point in time, um, in that moment. And I think the, the one thing around calling and help is that, you know, there's a lot of, um, it is to, of av- av- just to know that it's like, It's not, it's never shameful to like call in for extra help. And that at the end of the day, like, um, first responders search and rescue, I think would rather respond to a hundred like calls that maybe didn't need them than miss one call that did. Um, and it's that kind of thing where it's like, if you think you might need it, do it and it's better to do it earlier than later. Um, cause I think the one thing I've always, I've experienced a lot, particularly in teaching the wilderness first aid courses. And I think it's very common, um, in the lower mainland of BC because people, we've got like the North shore rescue show. We've got like stories about rescues kind of in the media regularly. And, um, you've got night vision, equipped helicopters. You've got all these kinds of things that oftentimes, you know, like there's probably no better place to be in a mountain emergency than the North shore of Vancouver, because you have an amazing team that is extremely well-equipped that can, that's going to get to you pretty quickly in terms of how far fast search and rescue happens. Um, similar like Squamishville area. But the reality is, is like, it may take a very long time, particularly if you're up in the North, anywhere that's more remote, you know, you're talking about a volunteer team that needs to get mobilized, that needs to find the resources that needs to get into you. So just thinking about like, if you think you need it, it's better to go like order big and order early. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and it would, it's, it's better to call them back and say, like to text back in the reach and be like, actually, we've got this thing stabilized and we're able to walk them out to the car. You don't need to get the helicopter than it is to realize at sunset that you really need the helicopter because it's not coming to the next day, provided the weather is okay. And, you know, all these kinds of things.
0: Yeah. As a park, as a park ranger, I would Ray really rather be like, get the call at nine o'clock in the morning and get turned yeah. around <laughs> at noon because, you know, we can stand down than getting... Getting the call at uh, nine o'clock at night and heading out and uh, yeah, and not having a whole lot of options at that point. So I think it's very, you know we we had um, Sandra Riches of Adventure Smart uh, on the podcast a while back, and she's an old friend, well, old Park old Park Ranger friend and uh, and she's now the executive director of Adventure Smart and trying to really get the messaging in around what you know how people um, should be safer on, on their trips, of course, and and um, and and reduce the need and severity of searches here in British Columbia. Uh, but yeah, definitely one of the things she was talking about is like just, you know, if you if you need help, call. We're there to help. Um, and that's the first don't don't be afraid to call. And I think it puts everybody under the gun and people hesitate to call. Um, but I think it's also important to like have the training and be prepared to, you know, know when those when that where that line is and feel comfortable managing you know a sprain or a cut that you can manage and and reduce the pressure on on search and rescue and other volunteers who are trying to and and you know and be be responsible and ethical well hunters in our case or or wilderness um in our wilderness pursuits as a whole um but yeah okay that, I think that's great and uh gosh this has been a kind of fun um so with that like i think like i'm think i'm kind of excited about doing so we, we sort of brainstormed and maybe talked about doing a one or a two day uh course for specifically for hunters and you know from maybe we should sort of have that conversation a little bit here and just say like what do you think of the needs for like someone like me who well maybe not like maybe you're uh, someone from your from in your hunting community or you're sorry your adventure friend community that it's involved in hunting um what type of training do you think would be a baseline level of training that we could offer people that would benefit them um, to do just be safer in that sort of, again, we're talking about the spectrum between you know, a day hunt to a multi-day backpacking sort of adventure. What do you think is a baseline need uh, for 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 uh, hunting training or sorry, first aid training for hunters?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the sort of like wilderness first aid world is kind of a good spot to build from. Um, and I think the most effective thing is to train um within these it's like it's the most effective to train with like in the context that you think you're actually going to potentially use it um so it's it's not a it's never a bad thing to go and get a basic first aid course but if you're training if you're like thinking about the time you're going to use this is going to be on a multi-day hunt then sitting in a classroom um you know with a well equipped like massive first aid kit that you can go to for everything and you're you know never never you know colder than 15 degrees and never warmer than 20 degrees um is not going to kind of condition you to the the situation so i think like the big one is like a tr- is looking for first aid training where you're going to be outside um where you're going to be in the elements where you're going to be having to like wear the kind of gear that you're going to go that you're going to be able to like you know bring out different things to think about like could i build a hypothermia kit with this you know do you know here's what's in my pack how would i put this stuff together or you know often we'll we'll do one in some of our bigger trips where we'll go on a hike day and some of the scenarios are like cool so there's a broken leg over there all you can use is what's in your pockets um and sort of so like training like that and also like challenging yourself to think through and like looking at your kit and thinking about what all i could use it for um, but yeah really kind of getting out into into those environments um and making it as real as you can within like reason of safety so thinking about like you know rather than um just doing hyper just practicing sort of with a hypothermia kit on a nice warm day you know having someone go out in november and jump in a lake and then having to actually put them in and feel what it feels like to to get put into that kit. Um, one of my favorite things.
0: Okay, we're not going to sell a lot of seats for this workshop. If we're going to throw people <laughs> in a lake. We got to sell a little bit more
1: I'll jump in the lake. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Often it's the instructors. But no, yeah. I think that's the big thing. Is like I think um, it's less about necessarily like the amount of hours. Like you know, within the wilderness world, there's there's kind of breakdowns of like pretty standard hours for certification. It's more about that experience of like getting out and getting hands on not in a, not in a indoor classroom of like doing the thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, feeling what it would really be like to respond in those moments and having to kind of work through and problem solve a lot. Cause that's really what this is often you end up doing. I think, you know, we talked about this before is, um, the answer oftentimes in, in medicine, but particularly in wilderness medicine to what should I do is the answer is always going to be, it depends. <laughs> um, yeah. and so the more we can get in more we can create scenarios and kind of simulations where we're actually forcing people to think through that it depends. I think that's a big part of the training. Um, and it's similar in, in the same way to like avalanche training or swift water rescue training. It's like, it's getting the training and then practicing because these are those skills, particularly the, um, the significant risk ones where it's like, these are the things that you're hopefully not using very regularly, but when you need it, you want it to be, Pretty sharp, kind of thing.
0: Yeah, right on. And I think that's, you know, when I reflect on, you know, my experience with first aid, you know, I've done as a in my park ranger world, you know, we are required to do a, a one day level one first aid, which any worker that works in an office that has more than five people in the office, you're required to take. And that covers off your lot, li- you know, your basically your liability for worker safety. And then we do a packaging course called transportation endorsement where, we can, if one of our coworkers is down and, and, and needs transportation by helicopter, we at least can package them and put them on a stretcher and get them ready for a flight. Uh, but that's the extent of, of, of training that we have for, as, as park managers. Um, we're not trained to necessarily provide first aid to the public, in, in which is, you know, for a bit, you know, it takes a little while to, well, the rationale for that is is, is extended, but um, we're just not, you know, that just doesn't it's a longer longer conversation really is to 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 why and when we we do provide first aid and just for our own workers um nonetheless uh, um, but even that training like it it's really limited to a couple things like you know like, like uh controlling bleeding um and uh CPR and you know getting someone breathing again if you can uh, but it's pretty it's limited and it really doesn't reflect on sort of the emergency scenarios that you you may have Um, out in in wilderness. So it'd sure be fun to take, you know, those basics of, you know, wound care and stabilizing and um, incorporating sort of that wilderness element and kind of the one I think about the most and and what I sort of share, you know, work with folks at our Hunter Field Skills Workshop is just, you know, how to sit tight and stay warm and uh, whether it's just sit tight and waiting out weather or sit tight and waiting for rescue and, you know, building, building shelter with your, with your stove and putting, or sort of with your, with your tarp and getting a fire going and getting as comfortable and staying as warm and comfortable as possible. And just that in itself, I think if, you know, if that's a skill that everybody should have when they're out there. And I think it's one that, you know, it takes a bit of practice to develop those skills and confidence to be able to whip up a shelter in a few minutes and, uh, and then potentially build a fire. And then if you incorporate, you know, wound care into that as well, I think we've got something really cool to offer people in terms of a, uh, of a, of a skill and, and um, confidence builder for being in the backcountry. So so let's do it. Let's make that one happen. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Cool. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you get back to your life here, but I have one question for you. I'd like to ask p- folks, can you think of your most memorable meal in the backcountry when out on an adventure?
1: Yeah, I think the one I'd have to go with was... Um I can't remember how many years ago this was, but um, I was out on a kayaking trip up the Kenai Peninsula, or in the Kenai Fjords of, up in Alaska. Wow. Um, buddy and I paddling around and uh, landed uh, just like a massive coho salmon that was way bigger than two of us on a kayaking trip could eat um, in one night. And so we uh, set up camp that night and built a uh, shoreline smoker out of the footprint of his tent. Uh, and some driftwood oh. um, and we like we we grilled and ate a whole bunch of it but we had a whole side of it and we smoked it uh, and it worked at least you know neither of us got food poisoning eating it for the next few days on the trip um, but that one just from the sheer kind of uh, MacGyver aspect um, of, of doing that uh, on a beach in, uh, in Alaska you know surrounded by that and you know obviously also both very stressed out about bears rolling at us at any given time in that moment
0: um, that that one's got to be pretty far up there. Right on. That's a great answer, right? I love that question because you know, for one thing, it was great senior response. It, like, it didn't didn't take you half a second for for it to pop into your head. I mean, it's always and it always revolves around some type of wild food, which is what eat wild's all about and and adventuring yeah, yeah. in the wilderness. But uh, um, what I will do, I, I really appreciate coming on Cam, and, and uh, I'll, I'll, I gotta send you a little gift. And I, I, our friends at West Coast Kitchen, they do uh, dehydrated food. I don't know if you've come across their stuff. It's the yeah, it's about yeah. how not, it's stuff, but they do kind of like a whole food product in a bag. Then. It's actually That's quite, awesome. it's actually quite nutritious and it actually builds up your energy as opposed to depleting it. Like some of the products that are freeze yeah. dried. <laughs> so, um, they're, they're a sponsor of the podcast. And so I'm, I've hooked up a deal with them. So they'll, um, they'll send you a package for coming on the eat well podcast and get you, and, uh, just throw it in your bag for your next adventure and enjoy a, enjoy a meal on us. And, um, yeah, man, I really appreciate doing this and, if you want to find Cam, are you on social media and are you comfortable sharing where you're at?
1: Yeah, I'm on uh, mostly Instagram
0: at CamFenton604. Cool, cool. So you wanted to find Cam there if you want to say hello or ask him any questions. Um, you'll see Cam and I will be partnering again with Sam Waddington of uh, Waddington. Is it Waddington Outdoors? In, 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 uh, in
1: yeah, Waddington Outdoors is a shop and Ascent uh, Mountain School is the guiding outfit.
0: Yeah, perfect. So we'll we'll be doing something probably next spring for sure, if not sooner for pack rafting and uh, getting folks out, doing another Eat Wild Descent uh, collaboration for a for pack rafting course and Cam will be leading that. And then, um, yeah, I think hopefully, maybe as soon as the next couple of months, let's put together a hunter-specific first aid course and, and get people out in the field and make, throw them in a lake and then uh, and get them feeling like hypothermic. <laughs> no, within like, in
1: a few months, I don't think we need to get in the lake in the, in the lower mainland to feel happy with yeah. everyone. We just go stand outside for a while.
0: Yeah, really, really well. Yeah, we're well. Let's enjoy this last it's few quiet. weeks of summer and uh, yeah. heading into the fall. Anyways, I really appreciate appreciate you doing this, Cam. Maybe just stay on the line, but you can say goodbye to the folks. Yeah, thank you. Right on, Cam. Hey, folks. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Now. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a question either on our Instagram or email me directly at eatwild.ca and we'll do our best to answer that question on our future podcast or we might even build an entire podcast based on your questions. So thanks for doing that. So if you want to hear more from Eat Wild, you can come join us. We're doing a series of Eat Wild Learn to Hunt webinars. So we're getting together on a monthly basis talking about all things hunting with a group of mentors through a webinar format. They're tons of fun. Come join us there. Now, if you happen to live in the Vancouver, Burst, Columbia area, we do in-person workshops where we get together, learn fundamental skills for you to be a better hunter. Hope you can hang out for one of those too if you happen to be in the area. Now, we'd love it if you could leave a review or a comment wherever you listen to your podcast. That'd be a great help to us. And more importantly, share this podcast with folks who care about the stuff we're talking about. So thanks for doing that. Until next time, eat well and well.